Welcome to Liberty Under Law, the podcast of the Robert H. Jackson Center, a nonprofit organization that exists to advance public awareness and appreciation of the principles of justice and the rule of law as embodied in the achievements and legacy of Robert H. Jackson, United States Supreme Court Justice and the Chief United States Prosecutor for the International Military Tribunal at Nuremberg. This podcast explores and examines contemporary and historic issues of equality, fairness, and justice with a Jacksonian lens through in-depth conversations with experts, academics, innovators, and those doing boots-on-the-ground work. I am your host, Kristen McMahon, president of the Robert H. Jackson Center. Welcome to Tea Time with the Jackson Center. I am Kristen McMahon, and I have the pleasure of serving as the president of the Robert H. Jackson Center in Jamestown, New York. We envision a world where the universal principles of equality, fairness, and justice prevail. Over the last few years, we have noticed an increase in the number of questions regarding democracy, its institutions, civic responsibilities, and how all of these intertwine and interact. The Jackson Center's program theme for this year is Democracy on Trial, and we are focused on the challenges to, pressures on, and opportunities for democracy and democratic institutions, both here in the United States and around the world. These are not new questions, and Robert H. Jackson wrote and spoke on democracy during his tenures as United States Attorney General, United States Supreme Court Justice, and the Chief U.S. Prosecutor at Nuremberg. During this year, we are convening conversations about democracy, U.S. and global institutions, voting rights, free press, and the U.S. Supreme Court, and so much more. This year, there's only one tea each month, typically on the fourth Thursday, although this month we are chatting on the fifth Thursday. And we hope each of these programs inspire you to have conversations with your family, friends, and colleagues, and to seek out ways to add your voice or make change in your communities. And for those of you watching this live, remember you can ask your questions at any time in the Facebook chat. Today, I am pleased to be in conversation with Bei Fang, the president of Radio Free Asia, where she oversees award-winning journalism with the mission of bringing free press to closed societies in Asia. She has spent most of her career in print journalism, as the Beijing bureau chief and covering the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq for US News and World Report, and later as the diplomatic correspondent for the Chicago Tribune. She has served in government during the Obama administration as a deputy assistant secretary of state for press and public diplomacy. Ms. Fang earned her undergraduate degree at Harvard University, was a visiting fellow at Oxford University and a Fulbright scholar in Hong Kong. Bay, thank you very much for having tea with me today. Thanks so much for having me. So I like to start each of these conversations with a foundational question. And we fortuitously happen to be speaking on the 26th anniversary of RFA's initial broadcast in 1996. So I would love for you to start with why was Radio Free Asia established and, and where does it operate? 
Yeah, so RFA, thank you so much. Um, it's it's really great to be here with you. So RFA uh, was created by Congress in the wake of the Tiananmen Square massacre. And the idea then was that, um, you know, they saw how the CCP uh, tried to censor all the news of what had happened to its own citizens. And so the, the idea was to create kind of an analog to, to Radio Free Europe, which already existed, and to uh, create a surrogate broadcaster to countries in Asia that don't have free press. So our founding mission to base, was to basically act as a counter to the propaganda and disinformation that was spread by the CCP inside China. Um, and the idea was that we were, we were supporting the foreign policy objectives of the U.S. government, not by propagandizing to these audiences about U.S. policies, but rather to support the intrinsic democratic values of the U.S. by giving citizens of countries that don't have free and open press, um, not just China, but also countries like North Korea and Myanmar um, access to the truth of what's happening in their own countries. So, you know, it's basically following the principle that an educated citizenry is beneficial to democracy. And the idea was also that we would model a free press um, and show how in-depth, trustworthy journalism actually counters state-controlled propaganda. So, so that was basically uh, how we were uh, originally formed. Actually, then Senator Biden was was uh, uh, very instrumental in uh, in bringing it to Congress and saying that we needed something that was separate from the Voice of America, had a totally different mission to create RFA. That's great. And just in case people are not familiar, CCP, Chinese Communist Party. Party, just, that's right. Yeah, <laughs> just, sorry about that. Yeah. So. Yeah, 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 basically the governing party of China. Yep. Perfect. To what you said, people I think are probably pretty familiar with Voice of America um, and also Radio Free Europe. When I was an exchange student in Europe, RFE is what I listened to uh, for a little taste of home. But as you mentioned, the mission of uh, Radio Free Asia is different than Voice of America. And so I think that might be new information for our audience just in terms of, so if you could break down just a little bit what those differences are, I think that would be helpful too. Yeah, definitely. So Voice of America's mission is to tell America's story and to basically cover sort of the international news to um, all of its audiences around the world. Um, so uh, so they are not surrogate broadcasters. They're not covering the, what we do, which is the domestic news in these countries um, that's then broadcast in the authentic voices of uh, citizens of those countries. So so that's, that's I think, the, the major difference. Um, we're sister organizations, as we are with Radio for Europe, um, the Middle East Broadcasting Network, and uh, the Office of Cuba Broadcasting. And uh, and so we we coordinate and talk to each other, but um, our missions are, are distinctly different. Well, and since RFA's mission is to provide the accurate and timely news uh, and information to Asian countries whose governments basically prohibit access to a free press, that is really an ever-evolving situation. Uh, you mm-hmm. know, even just in the last 18 months in Myanmar and Hong Kong, anything that might have been styled as an independent media source has basically been shuttered. Um, And so talk to us about how the RFA reporters do their work in these circumstances. 
That's a really good question. And it is, as you say, it's evolving. Um, we have found it more and more difficult to report in Hong Kong. We still have our bureau open and uh, and we're seen as sort of the last man standing in terms of independent uh, news media there, you know, because we broadcast in Cantonese. Uh, so we reach the, the local audiences, whereas I think, you know, sort of international media that uh, broadcasts in um, or, you know, um, disseminates in, in English is, is sort of less of a threat to to uh, the the government there in Myanmar um, we've actually been at the forefront of reporting on on what's been happening there um, since the coup occurred uh, we actually had to um, help a number of our journalists get out um, and we have people who are still um, reporting uh, in in various places uh, in the in the area um, without using their names, I and mean, they feed news into our um, our people here, who then broadcast it back out. Um, and we reach these audiences in all different ways. Um, we uh, you know into sort of North Korea, for example, we we broadcast mainly on shortwave. Um, people actually do tune in in the middle of the night with shortwave radios. The government ones are soldered to the government stations. But increasingly, there's been um, uh, radios coming in from uh, through the black market in China. Um, and so people are able to, to reach us that way. And then, you know, in, in places in Southeast Asia, so in Cambodia, we're like the number two uh, sort of news uh, group in uh, on Facebook. So um, so people reach us through social media quite a bit. And uh, and we found that, you know, after the coup in Myanmar, our social media numbers shot up because that was the way that they were reaching us. Are there things that you are thinking about as government control of various media titans? Are there alternative ways that you're also thinking about how do you how do you both get the word into the country but also how are the reporters doing their work? Are you are you planning for for future things like that? Well, yeah, we certainly are actually with, uh, so we were actually just given a 30% budget increase this year, which I think is, uh, is a testament to the impactful work that that we're doing, but also a recognition that China has increased its media influence so much around the world. So, you know, when we were created 26 years ago, we um, broadcast mainly into the the sort of into China, uh, reaching uh, trying to reach the domestic audience, um, and that was what China was was uh, was mainly censoring. But now you see that they are, you know, they they have a reach around the world. They're point, putting like uh, upwards of 1.3 billion dollars uh, by by most accounts um, annually into their media influence, um, and so we have to, um, you know go to that and uh, and try to create platforms that uh, counter the disinformation that they're spreading um, in in third countries, um, in, uh, you know, sort of their Mandarin uh, media control all over the world. It's interesting, a, a couple of years ago, um, Purdue University did a, a poll of their uh, graduate students, um, and they found that the Chinese uh, foreign student population was 
the one population that actually became more anti-American um, and more sort of nationalistic about China the longer they stayed in the U.S. And that was basically because they still consumed all of their news through Chinese social media, which is a closed bubble. And so, so we're trying to create those platforms where we reach uh, this audience, especially the post-Tiananmen uh, generation of, of young Chinese, where they are all around the world. Um, so, uh, so that that's one effort that we've uh, we've started in the last couple of years. You know, basically also creating you know sort of more uh, more content that's visually appealing, using more data journalism, and uh, um, and you know basically modernizing what we're doing. Oh, that's great. And I want to drill down a little bit into what you were saying about China and its, and its misinformation, because my understanding is doing research in preparation for this conversation. Mm-hmm. A lot of, in Asia especially, a lot of countries or a lot of news sources in those areas also don't have people on ground in country, in other countries, or don't have staff really for the fact-checking side of journalism. And so they take the releases just call them that for the wholesale category of information from China, largely in terms of this is what's happening. And so for my understanding is for populations in Asia, perhaps their understanding of Russia's invasion of Ukraine is completely through the Chinese lens, which is very pro-Russia. That's right. That's right. So one of the efforts that we um, have just started with our our budget increase is creating a fact check center, and we are hoping to become a platform. We've already reached out to a number of the fact check sort of units, the, the people who are doing similar things um, on a more limited level um, in the region, uh, to try to do a sort of systematic uh, look at how you know social media memes are are created. I mean, you could just start with like the foreign ministry spokesperson of China and his Twitter account, and um, and all the disinformation. Information that's spread there and how it goes viral, um, but but yeah, I mean, China was uh, was definitely um, amplifying the uh, the disinformation that came out of Russia about um, about the the war in Ukraine. Uh, what was the second question you asked? Oh yeah, so on the. I mean, so that, yeah, yeah, so exactly. So, you know, there's also, uh, you know, Chinese media influence. So in places like Thailand, which is, you know, nominally a democracy and also, you know, even places like, you know, Italy and Australia, um, China has actually targeted uh, media that that's, you know, technically independent media, but they might be struggling financially and they need, you know, content, especially on just sort of like international news. And so Xinhua is actually just, you know, wholesale given them this content to put on their airwaves or their newspapers or whatever. And uh, and in that way, China basically seeds its, its propaganda um, all over the world, even into democracies. Hmm, that's interesting. So I want to talk a little bit too about this propaganda arm, because I know when you and I were preparing for this, one of the things you commented on was Radio Free Asia's independent nature and how mm. that is important, especially to, I think, combat this concept of it being American propaganda outside the U.S. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that as well, please. Yeah, for sure. So I talked about how we have these sister organizations where 
Um, so Voice of America is actually an agency of government, uh, but Radio Free Asia, Radio Free Europe, and you know the other grantees, so um, Middle East Broadcasting Network and uh, the Office of Cuba Broadcasting, we are um, we are actually uh, grantees of of government. Uh, you know, so we get our grants from Congress, but we're actually private nonprofit corporations. But all of us, including BOA, there is a strict firewall between us and the administration or um, the the political, um, you know, side of government. Uh, so the idea is that we are um, insulated from any government influence on what we broadcast um, our editorial operations. And that's really important because basically the only reason we are credible with our audiences is that we are not seen as, um, as you know, propaganda spewing, uh, you know, voices of the, of the U.S. government. It, you know, we are actually trying to bring free press to um, to their uh, their countries, and you know I think authoritarian governments like China's, like Russia's, would love nothing better than to be able to say that that you know we have been compromised and we are actually getting our directives from whatever administration is in power, and so we need to make sure that that firewall, which was shored up um, through legislation in the last couple of years, that that remains intact um, and and uh, and there is no influence. Mm, that's great. Yes to perhaps drill down into some specific stories. So, but I, one of the things I found interesting in my research is that Radio Free Asia really started a Uyghur service, I will say decades before the rest of us even understood what that term meant. And it was really only two years after the initial broadcast. So by 1998, the Uyghur service, which correct me if I'm wrong, I believe is still the world's only Uyghur language. That's right. Outlet. Okay. And so RFA was actually the first to break the news about the treatment of the Uyghurs in China, although separately also the Rohingya population in Myanmar. And so for our audience who is used to hearing us talk about human rights violations and, yeah. and authoritarian governments, I think this will be of particular interest. And I'm curious if you have a sense of what was the reason the Weir service was started? And it was it was it because there was some sort of thought of this is an at-risk population? Just curious as to how that got started and then sort of the evolution to 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 where it is now. That's an interesting question. I have to say I don't know the background of why it was started initially, but I do think that the idea was, you know, so into China we broadcast in Mandarin, Cantonese. Tibetan and Uyghur. Um, and I think the idea was that we wanted to be able to reach um, populations that, that you know, had different needs and, uh, um, and also needed to know about what was happening around them. There certainly wasn't the, the kind of crackdown and restrictions on the Uyghur population now that there wasn't, you know, then 25 years ago that there is now. But in any case, it was prescient in terms of, uh, you know, now providing to the Uyghurs. And I should say it's the only international sort of uh, Uyghur service. There there are sort of sure. local Uyghur um, news news outlets. But it is um, it is pretty amazing. I mean, you, you know, you, you you mentioned this. We uh, we were the ones who, who broke the news about um, 
what's been happening in um, in Xinjiang and uh, you know with the detention camps um, and you know initially all that we were hearing was just basically relatives of our our Uyghur service members but then it was spreading and it was not just about uh, you know um, retaliation for the the work that their you know their their uh, sons and daughters or whatever were doing here in in the U.S. and you know I think what is really uh, impactful and and interesting to note is that. You know, our Uyghur service is based here in the U.S. You know, we actually don't have people on the ground there. We're not allowed to by the government. And uh, and so they do really basic shoe leather reporting um, from, you know, our offices here in Washington, D.C. And it's only like a dozen people, but they were the ones who actually got all of this news out. And so, you know, Vice News actually did a segment on one of our Uyghur reporters and just looked at how he, he, you know, he basically every night like makes hundreds of calls to local police stations and has over the years built up um, a network of sources who um, will talk to him and trust him and want to get the story out. And, and so, you know, he, you know, just recently uh, found just by calling, you know, some of these, you know, local, uh, local people, he was like, you know, why are there these, uh, these, you know, public service announcements being put out about, um, you know, uh, make sure your your kids are safe and uh, keep them close by and whatever, and all of these uh, PSAs that were just being put out in, in the Uyghur language. Um, and he found that there are actually children who are, uh, who are, dying from, you know, basically neglect. So, you know, in one case, you know, there, there were actually a, a couple of kids found in a snowdrift frozen to death and, uh, and then, you know, you know, starved to death on the side of the street. And a lot of this was, is basically, and so he found that this was a trend that, um, you know, it's because their parents have been taken away um, into mm -hmm. uh, the detention camps and they're being, either looked after by, you know, elderly grandparents who don't have the the wherewithal to to keep a close eye on them or or just neglected or being put into these uh, orphanages. Um, so, you know, that's the kind of stuff that we look at. And, and you know, I think a lot of uh, other mainstream media looks to us almost as you know, primary source material, just because, you know, we have these, we're so close to the sources um, themselves. So, and I want, you said something when you started this, that, that last answer that I also wanted to talk about. So you said when this started, it was families of the U.S.-based journalists, um, the U.S.-based Weir service uh, journalists who seem to be being taken to these camps. Yeah. Is this, pretty common like is is that how the retribution i'm i'm guessing it's more challenging for them to reach the journalists themselves here in the u.s and that's so right their way of attempting to control what is being reported on and published is through the families that are still in china that's right and we still have um you know uh six of our uh we reporters still have family members dozens of family members and these are like elderly parents and you know cousins and nephews and nieces um uh, shut up in these camps. Um, and it's, it, they've, you know, the authorities have been very clear that it's, a, in this case, it's about the, the reporting that their relatives have been doing. Interesting. I also want to talk a little bit about COVID mm -hmm. and RFA's 
counter voice to the reports coming out of Asia regarding COVID. And you you had mentioned that in Wuhan, which is generally considered to, to be the, the epicenter of the start of this, that people there were turning to RFA to have a sense of what was happening in their own city. That's right. Um, and it was it, it was pretty remarkable. It was back in December of uh, 2019. Uh, and we we suddenly started seeing that our you know Facebook video views were up like 900 percent um, just in the months, um, you know, it was basically in the last, you know, the last month of 2019 and the first couple of months of 2020. Um, and it was people from inside Wuhan um, and, you know, then spreading out uh, around the country. But uh, but people really wanted to know what was happening in their own city um, and they weren't getting it from you know the the media um, inside China and so uh, it was pretty remarkable kind of as a microcosm of like how there is always hunger for the truth um, uh, you know and um, and so we we did um, a number of stories um, at first just kind of exposing what was was actually happening on the ground but then um, but then also um, doing stories about how the Chinese were actually covering up the number of deaths that that had happened during the the first two months uh, of their lockdown um, so you know, basically by like checking uh, the numbers, uh, you know, calling the funeral, there are like seven funeral parlors in the area, calling them, finding out how many, you know, remains of, of, uh, of people they were distributing to family members a day. Um, and, you know, we came out with a number that was, you know, you know, like uh, 10 times what, what they had said. So, uh, and then, you know, after that, I think the, even uh, the U.S. authorities actually um, uh, picked up on this, uh, you know, the, through through U.S. intelligence. Um, um, so those are the kinds of stories. And and then most recently, we uh, we've covered uh, in Xinjiang um, that many Uyghurs are are dying because of um, you know lack of medical care, uh, et cetera, because of of the lockdown um, that's happening uh, for COVID in that region. I was reading some, I've been spending a lot of time on RFA's website also, and I appreciate that uh, some of the news is available in English as well, since mm -hmm. I speak none of the other languages, <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, just reading through some of the significant food shortages and the, the government propaganda around it's coming, you know, help is coming or support is coming, but that, that doesn't seem to be materializing in, in a in a fashion that anyone would consider able to sustain life. Um, yeah. If you're, if you're, if you're waiting weeks. And then I think there was a separate report, even specifically talking about the Uyghur camps and the, the even increased deprivations there. Yeah. Yeah. Even last week it was, uh, there was a story about like 22 Uyghurs in, in one city that died of starvation in one day, you know, basically because of these zero COVID policies and the lockdown. So well, and you had mentioned that the the thirty percent budget increase, which if I'm not mistaken, I think the the total funding is still under seventy million dollars, if I'm mm -hmm. remembering correctly. So when you're thinking about that combating, did you say one point three billion that China yeah, is, yeah, is, yeah, that's right. yes, is, is yeah. putting into it? That feels daunting. <laughs> but yeah. I know, I know you have a lot of plans and a lot of thoughts for like, how does this move forward? So, um, and you've shared a few things, but I wanted to see if there were, there were other things you wanted to share there. Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, the way we're looking at it is, you know, our, our, 
our main focus of you know Chinese disinformation, and of course we we um, also are expanding our our Southeast Asian uh, and Korean services. But but when we look at Chinese disinformation, um, you know there's basically three prongs. There's the domestic prong. There's the global Mandarin prong that was I was talking about with like the spread of, of disinformation um, in Mandarin speaking populations around the world, which is why you know these young Chinese um, even in the U.S. Uh, get uh, get uh, you know sort of inundated with disinformation, and then and then the third, which is um, you know these third countries uh, like Thailand, like you know these democracies that are getting seeded with um, you know Xinhua and, and uh, Chinese uh, media influence. So we are so we're basically uh, trying to create platforms to push back on on all three of these areas. Um, so. Um, so one of them is, you know, looking at basically just the fact check uh, um, platform. Um, we're also looking at doing more investigative work um, and, uh, you know, basically across all of our language services, um, you know, in we found, you know, before this budget increase, we had like the Uyghur service actually got hold of something uh, called the um, the Aksu list. So it was a list of like a like thousands of, of Uyghurs and the reasons that the authorities were giving for why they were being um, thrown into these camps. And we knew that we couldn't, we didn't have the manpower to, to do much with that. So um, so we actually gave the list to Human Rights Watch and they spent months looking into it and actually put out a report about um, sort of big data and how that was being used uh, um, uh, by China to, uh, to you know, imprison these, these Uyghurs. Um, so that's the kind of work that we would like to be able to do in-house. Um, and uh, and so that's one of the big efforts that we're we're putting uh, money towards. We're we're also opening bureaus. So um, we're actually going to open a bureau, um, hopefully in uh, in Turkey, uh, because we there's a huge Uyghur population there of refugees, and we'd like to be able to report um, uh, on them. Um, and then we are also opening in you know, we have stringers already in Australia um, and we want to be able to uh, expand into the Pacific Islands and uh, and look at all of the Chinese media influence there. And, uh, you know, as well as we're also uh, opening in, in Jakarta and we're expanding our, our Taipei Bureau. So, you know, in all of these ways, we're, we're basically you know, I, I hate to feel like we're reacting to what China is doing, but, you know, this is the reality of, of the past, you know, a quarter century of, of how China has expanded its media influence. Um, and, you know, it, it's true. We It's a fraction. We, what we have is a fraction of what they put into it, but we have to keep pushing. And um, uh, so we do what we can. Well, and so one of the conversations we have here at the center have had certainly is sometimes the people who most need to hear the information that you're providing are one, the least likely to seek it out and also to perhaps least likely for it to get in front of. And so I have to imagine that's also something that that RFA is grappling with just in terms of how are you ever broadening the circles of the people that you're reaching with this information. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that as well. Is it, are you finding it that it's a byproduct of the reliability? And so it's sort of word of mouth helps expand, or are you also actively doing things to make sure people are aware that RFA is doing this kind of reporting? Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, certainly in many places, there is a lot of word of mouth, but 
Um, but you know, I was talking about how we uh, created this brand to try to reach young Chinese, young Mandarin speakers around the world, um, and that you know, we, that's an active push to try to uh, reach these this audience that wasn't actually, you know, part of RFA's core audience over the last 25 years. And uh, and so we've created programming that we feel like, it, and we've seen is, is, has already gone viral, but we, we, uh, we were hoping that that it would uh, resonate with with these these young people. Um, so you know, one example is that we created the the first animated political satire in Mandarin, and uh, it's uh, it's it's called uh, you know basically the the superhero. The it's like the Incredibles. It's like a family <laughs> with with superpowers that they live on this sort of totalitarian um, corporate campus. Um, and uh, and so, and it's, it's just, it's really entertaining. It's voiced by all of our own uh, reporters. Um, one of the producers on there was actually um, a young Chinese woman who came over here as a student and actually didn't know about uh, what had happened in Tiananmen Square um, until she came here. So uh, it's pretty amazing to have people like that now turning their uh, their talents uh, to, to try to reach their their uh, their peers um, around the world. Yeah, no, absolutely. Bay, so a question for you I have is there's so much for Radio Free Asia to be focusing on. And there's, you know, I'm sure as as the reporters in the United States are working their sources, and in most of these countries, I suspect the answer to this question is no, but is there also an effort to bolster local media in that? I don't know if there is, this is really just an off-the-cuff question of, is there almost like an underground network there that RFA is helping or or some, I'm just curious as to, and, or is that really outside of your mandate? So it's not, you know, it's, it's not something given your resources, something that can be a part of what you do. Yeah. Um, I mean, just organically, there have been, you know, sort of groups of independent journalists that, that have come together. Um, we don't actively, you know, sort of train or manage anyone. Um, but, uh, but we'd like to think that there is you sort of a, a, a a sisterhood of of that. I do think that there is space, especially in places where we, you know, where where uh, there is crackdown on on um, independent local journalism, where we can uh, help. Um, you know, one of these we just started this um, fellowship for uh, sort of Hong Kong journalists um, in exile who you know can't do their craft anymore inside uh, Hong Kong um, who and kind of giving them a, a home at least for a year here in in, uh, um, in the US um, so we're trying to to help in the ways that we can but yeah as you say there's you know we don't have you know we're, we we focus our resources on our own reporting um, and hope that that can spread. We started off this year on Democracy on Trial talking with the varieties of Democracy Institute and talking really about the ebb and flow of democracy and how it sort of reached a peak in the late 80s and is now on a downward trend, although in certain parts of the world there is sort of an upward swing for democracy as well. And so what was just sort of in the back of my mind was, well, as these countries are moving along that path, there are there, there is support that can be given, and I recognize this gets into a tricky, tricky situation just in terms of 
do then people see that outside influences or that as outside influence? And, you know, so it's, it's certainly something that would have to be managed carefully, but I just keep thinking of the, you know, the vast amount of experience that, that your reporters have and those connections that they have in country that, you know, should, there's actually really no easy example coming to mind for me for, for Asia in terms of something that would be making that turn towards a more democratic that, you know, there are, there might be ways to safely help also bolster that that free press that that free speech mm-hmm. um given the experience that 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 uh that your organization has with that so just just you know, yeah dream, yeah dreaming yeah. of I a mean, better world <laughs> no no i hear you and you know like i said at the start i think you know part of rfa's mission was actually to model a free press to uh you know people in those countries yep we we spend a lot of time talking here as well about how people understand their new sources, how they, how they mm-hmm. sort of gut check them and fact check them in terms of reliability and objectivity, or at least understanding their perspective, if, if not, if not fully objective, um, and that in terms of modeling that yeah. well feels important. All right. This is my favorite part of every conversation, which I deem the lightning round. <laughs> these are just the last few questions that I will ask you. What do you wish people were paying more attention to? Oh, man. Well, given where we are today, um, and this is something that has weighed on me for a long time, um, I, and it's, it's off topic. It's not related That's to uh, democracy and, and the work that, that we all do, um, which I think is supremely important. But I think climate change <laughs> is, is so important, and it frustrates me to no end that, um, that people don't don't think about it 24/7. I mean it's something that uh you know I have two young kids and when I look at you know sort of how beautiful our world is and you know what we're doing to it and what's happening right now I sometimes feel like all of our talents should be focused on that you know one huge crisis um so you know I I know this isn't what we are talking about, but it's, that's totally that's fine. What, it's, yep. What's you know on my mind quite a bit. I have been thinking through, although I haven't quite figured out how to do this yet. Um, so if you have thoughts, we can we can talk about that afterwards as well. But I feel like there are a lot of topics that have become politicized. Yeah, that should never have become politicized. Um, totally. And 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 you know sort of climate change in my mind falls into one of those buckets. I know not everybody would agree with that, but that that's why I totally agree. For me. Yeah. And so I, I don't know how you go about depoliticizing things once they are already politicized. Um, and I also get the natural tendency to politicize things because that, that push and pull I'm right. You're wrong is sort of seems to be a fundamental, fundamental precept for us in the United States, at least at this point. Um, but that's, that's a, that's a nut I'm, I'm trying to crack. So we can, we can talk about <laughs> that, that later. Cause you know, Let's do that. there are many nuts there. What do you see as the greatest threat to democracy or multiple threats? If you see those. Uh, I think what you touched on before, which was, um, you know, what's happening to local media and, and, Social the impact of social media basically uh, segmenting the the news that we get um, and basically creating different realities for for different people um, and I think that's that's a huge threat I do think there should be more regulation of social media um, 
And yeah, and I, I think I think we need to be aware of that. And I think there needs to be more education of, about that, that that isn't political. Um, I actually am involved with the um, Mike and Maureen Mansfield Center um, out of Montana, which is trying to do this kind of work. Um, and I think I think you guys would be great partners, actually. But um, but, you know, trying to do some of this educational work about uh, about media and uh, and the threat uh, of of polarization of media on on democracy. All right, then to flip that slightly more positively, what do you see as the opportunities for democracy or democratic institutions? So I, I think, I mean, this is gonna be repetitive, but I do think that, that we just need to uh, do more education. And I think we need to involve the private sector. I mean, I don't think, you know, I don't think there, there's enough uh, look at what um, the private sector could be doing. I mean, even on the, on the human rights front, um, you know, uh, having corporations involved in, uh, uh, you know, making sure, um, you know, no Uyghur, forced Uyghur labor is, is, uh, is in their supply chains, um, that kind of thing. I mean, that's like sort of the the base of what what they could be doing, but then going up through you know the the um, social media companies um, and uh, um, and just you know basically having this this common idea of of how important um, our democracy is. And I don't get the sense you have a lot of time for reading and listening to other things, but I always like to ask this because I always like to leave our audience with some recommendations of if they'd like to learn more or if they are curious, you know, what's in your head when you're thinking about things. So are there any articles or books or podcasts or people, even thinkers that you think you would recommend to our audience? Ah, well, this is a tough one. As I said, I, I don't have, uh, I don't have uh, much time for, um, uh, for reading these days with a three and a five year old, <laughs> but um, aside from, you know, Dr. Seuss, but, but I do think, so let's see, uh, I recently watched a series called Station Eleven, which was kind of, you know, you, you can, you know, generally like my husband and I kind of watch escapist things. And this isn't so much escapist because it actually, uh, the premise is that there's a global pandemic that kills 90% of, of the world's population. Um, but it does really make you uh, reflect and think about humanity and um, and what gives uh, us all meaning um, in our lives. And I think that was something that I would recommend just, you know, just to, to kind of pull out a bit in, in our lives and, uh, and think about uh, sort of greater, greater things. That's, that's perfect. Bay, thank you very much. Um, for our audience, just a quick programming announcement. Mark your calendars for October 12th, 2022. The Jackson Center will be hosting a half-day seminar called The Movement to a Level Playing Field, and we will be commemorating the 50th anniversary of Kurt Flood's landmark Supreme Court case challenging Major League Baseball. So you can find more information and register for this program on our website, roberthjackson.org. It is a hybrid program. So if you are interested in attending virtually, put that in the comments and we'll send you the link for the webinar. And if you are in the Jamestown area, please feel free to join us in person. Bay, thank you so very much for having tea with me today and for sharing your thoughts on this topic. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. You have been listening to Liberty Under Law, 
the podcast of the Robert H. Jackson Center. Our podcast is edited by Connor Keenan. Original theme music for Liberty Under Law by Bryson Barnes. I'm Kristen McMahon, president of the Robert H. Jackson Center and your host. Content for this episode was drawn from Tea Time with the Jackson Center, a series of Facebook Live events produced by the Jackson Center, whose mission is to advance public awareness and appreciation of the principles of justice and the rule of law as embodied in the achievements and legacy of Robert H. Jackson, United States Supreme Court Justice and Chief United States Prosecutor for the International Military Tribunal at Nuremberg. We envision a world where the universal principles of equality, fairness, and justice prevail. As a nonprofit organization, the Jackson Center's mission is made possible in great part through philanthropic gifts. To learn more about the Jackson Center, our programming, and how you can support our mission, please visit www.roberthjackson.org. You can connect with us and ask questions of our guests through our website, We're also on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, and wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you heard, remember to subscribe and share with your friends.